This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's episode, we talked to Shamira Mako and Valentin Mogadam about their new book, After the Arab Uprisings. We'll also talk to a team of authors, Salma Musa, William Marble, Ala Al-Babah, and Alexandra Siegel about their article, Can Exposure to Celebrities Reduce Prejudice? The Effect of Mohammed Saleh on Islamophobic Behaviors and Attitudes, just published in the American Political Science Review. And finally, we talked to Mai Hassan about Sudan's civil resistance and the prospects for a democratic transition. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we're joined by Shamir Anmako of Boston University and Val Mogadam of Northeastern University, and currently the John Kluge Chair of Countries and Cultures of the South at the Library of Congress. They're the author of the new book, After the Arab Uprisings, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Val, Shamir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. So to start, why don't we just uh, give a, get a little bit of uh, overview of the book itself? Uh, why did you write it? And what do you think the major contributions of this book are 10 years after the uprisings? Thank you so much, Mark. Um, we focus on the countries that experience robust and sustained uh, political transitions um, and uprisings. And so um, over a decade, we analyzed some of the trajectories and some of the outcomes that happened in Tunisia Um, focusing also on Egypt, Morocco, Bahrain, Libya, Syria, and Yemen as sustained sites of protest um, initially in 2010 and then into uh, most notably in 2011. And some of the central questions that we ask in the book is uh, include are uh, why were some but not all of the mass social protests of 2010 accompanied or 2011 accompanied by relatively quick and nonviolent outcomes in a direction of regime change, uh, democracy, and social transformations? Um, and we ask also what explains this variation. So why did, for example, Tunisia initially succeed and Egypt did not? Why did the Bahraini monarchy call on outside military assistance to repress the protests while the Moroccan monarchy quickly agreed to constitutional amendments? And then why did places like Libya, Syria and Yemen descend into internationalized civil wars? Um, and more broadly, what are the prospects for democratization in the region? And to answer that, the book offers a multi-level and cross-national comparison of cases through a systematic analysis of four interacting variables. We look at state and regime type, the nature of gender and women's mobilization, civil society and external influence. um, And that includes both military interventions, but also foreign aid allocations. Um, And in doing so, we situate the MENA region and the transitions and their outcomes within broader comparative works on democratization and contentious politics um, so that we kind of fit it within third wave transitions and the literature on uh, uh, democratization in general. Um, We approach the subject matter a bit differently in in that we fuse socio-structural analysis um, within our framework to account for how all of these variables interact and to explain the different outcomes that we see across time. Um, And we argue that by infusing these dimensions in our explanatory framework, we're able to situate the Arab uprisings trajectories along this kind of temporal and this more contextual setting um, that frames this really complex web of interactions that produced um, very divergent outcomes a decade on. Um, In this way, the book is distinctive for several reasons. First, the four variables constitute an integrated theoretical framework um, and are in the way constitutive of state society relations, but also of the given country's place and location in the international system. Second, we deliberate um, the role of gender relations and and mobilization and the capacity of women and civil society organizations prior to and following the uprisings as an explanatory variable for gauging outcomes. Um, Third, our comparative analysis integrates elite-centric and movement-centric approaches and we acknowledge the influence of both endogenous and exogenous factors and forces. Um, And in doing so, the book also considers external intervention as a key variable for explaining the success or failure of some of these transitions um, across the Arab uprisings um, and across the region a decade on. And we find that the regional and international intervention in support of or in opposition to um, or you know, to neutralize the regimes across the region had drastically altered protest trajectories. Um, and the essential, we argue that the essential ingredient to a democratic transition is that the political authority is derived from the free decision of the electorate. And I think some of the, both the, the um, uh, 
the transitions and the outcomes that we see really speak to um, how much the executive and the regimes were constrained a decade on. Um, and this is something we explore in, in that the ways in which the regimes then constrain these other um, interacting variables as well. Well, there have been a, a few other books uh, kind of comparable to this, uh, the, the Brownlee, uh, Massoud, and Reynolds volume uh, fairly early on. One thing that's distinctive here is that now we have a decade's perspective and some things which might have seemed really important uh, back in 2011 or 2012, caught up in the heat of the moment, we have some perspective on them now. So when you were writing the book, what, what were some of the things which you were able to see um, that maybe wasn't so obvious, um, you know, way back, you know, back then when we were trying to get our, our hands around what was happening? Um, one of the, um, uh, the real differences, I think, between uh, the Arab um, spring protests and the outcomes and some of the earlier ones that we've compared, um, uh, is the global environment. Um, now we have compared uh, across the book, but especially in chapter two, um, third wave and fourth wave democratic transitions. Um, Tunisia and the other countries were part of the um, fourth wave. And that's a very different um, international system, a very different global um, environment. For one thing, um, these protests occurred um, in the context of a neoliberal um, uh, global economy where income inequalities had also been expanding um, absolutely everywhere. And where countries, the richest countries had also experienced a financial crisis in 2008. And so the kinds of robust economic and financial um, assistance um, that uh, third wave democratic transitions um, had experienced, whether we're talking about Southern Europe in the late 1970s or Latin America or um, uh, Southeast Asia, these simply were not forthcoming. So that's one key uh, difference in terms of um, where the Arab uh, Spring protests and uh, the movements and the new regimes found themselves. But of course, there are also internal um, issues that uh, that we discuss um, a great deal in um, uh, in the book, and this is where the compa our comparison of uh, across our seven cases and what makes Tunisia and to a lesser extent Morocco so very different comes in. So these the these fundamental differences between the third wave democratic transitions and the fourth wave, I think, are um, are key, are key, and we really um, underscore them in the book. One of the things which really interests me, having done a lot of work on this, is the way that outcomes are a moving target, right? And so if you're writing about Egypt in 2012, it's very different from writing about it after the coup uh, a year later. Or if you're writing about how Sudan and uh, Iraq and Lebanon and Algeria managed to avoid any mobilization in 2015, and then suddenly in 2019, things look very different. And so we really are looking at have a much broader perspective now. And um, and uh, Shamiran, you know, when you're looking at the, how did you decide to focus on the the four key factors that uh, that you laid out, uh, and uh, how do they help you um, to make sense of these rapidly shifting trajectories? Yeah, that's such a good question, Mark. And it that that's that made the the book both really uh, exciting to write, but really difficult to write because it meant that the project started in 2016. And I think you recall, I, I presented it at the Princeton mm -hmm. um, conference on five years after the Arab uprisings, which I got really incredibly uh, helpful feedback on. I think one of the things that helped us when we were, and with Val's um, initial idea, was that how do we explain these transitions as they were happening? And what were some of the things that we were seeing um, from a kind of a multi-dimensional lens? So we were looking at what was happening across these societies. Um, as well as what was happening on a much more kind of macro level, what was happening at the regional level and what was happening at the international level. And one of the things that we highlight in the book that led us to, that I think gave us this really holistic, uh, enabled us to have this holistic way of looking at the transitions was that we realized that actually there's a lot of things that are interacting with each other, both at the micro and macro level that produce these divergent outcomes. And in looking at the seven country case studies that we explore in the book, 
um, these had vastly different trajectories. Um, and so, you know, in looking at the more violent transitions, for example, in looking at Libya initially, well, Bahrain, Libya, Syria, and Yemen, countries that have also experienced external intervention, is that those external interventions were also outcomes of um, kind of social forces that were interacting with both regional actors and international actors. Um, and in countries like, uh, uh, on the other hand, that experienced initially less violent transitions, so not saying nonviolent, but less violent transitions like Tunisia, Morocco, and Egypt, is that they had, these were sites that had more uh, both robust civil society organizations that were able to mobilize across different sectors, but also had pretty robust women's movements that I think, you know, Val can uh, speak to a bit more. And so we came with, we came up with these four variables that are so central to the book because we, they, they allowed us to fuse what was happening at the micro level with what was happening at the macro level. Um, and one of the arguments we make in chapter six of the book for example, on the question of external influence, is that sure, you have direct military interventions in some of these countries that produce really internationalized civil wars. But at the same time, we look at foreign aid allocations, for example, and different EU neighborhood programs to North Africa over a 20 year time period, and even after, you know, a decade after the Arab uprisings. And we showed that not only did aid become much more securitized, um, but it started to prioritize less these, you know, the, the emphasis on civil society and women's organizations um, and support for these, you know, kind of non-state actors that really act as a buffer uh, between state and society. Um, and so in having this kind of in these, we argue that these four variables really interact and to explain divergence across a decade, um, we show that this interaction is really central to mapping out both transitions, but also some of the stagnation that we see across the region. Yeah, yeah, Shamiran's, um, uh, you know, uh, addressed that question really very well. And I will only add that, um, again, um, we have looked at um, the causes and also the outcomes of the Arab Spring protests um, at uh, multiple um, scales. Uh, micro level, you know, people's attitudes, perceptions, etc. I mean, you know, people also have to genuinely believe in and accept um, democratic values um, in order for democracy to uh, succeed. I mean, Christian Welsel and others have made this point, but institutions matter very much. Um, and we focus a great deal on institutions um, in the uh, chapter on um, democracy, the chapter um, obviously on states and political institutions, and of course, civil society, feminist organizations, women's organizations, and so on. Um, but also the international system, or from another perspective, the world system, the nature of the capitalist world system really does matter. And once again, um, the, uh, the protests of 2011, not only the Arab Spring, but the others that took uh, place there, um, the European protests, um, Occupy Wall Street, this is a very different um, world system, very different global environment from the ones that um, um, again, Southern Europeans, uh, Latin Americans, um, Southeast Asians, and Eastern Europeans um, more or less enjoyed. Uh, there were more opportunities, there were more prospects, there was more support, there was more um, uh, economic and financial support as well. So again, we're looking at this from multiple scales and again, looking at how these four um, explanatory variables um, uh, are meaningful, are robust, are salient, and also interact with each other to produce these outcomes. And we more or less uh, predicted that uh, Tunisia would have some difficulties, even though it was the one success story of the region. So one of the most interesting, I think, and novel uh, parts of the book is the way that you systematically incorporate women and gender uh, participation into the analysis, and you know, and, and we we know that there's been some really great uh, uh, like ethnographic works on uh, women's participation under Mina Lam and um, Shireen Hafez in Egypt, and Ailey Tripp has this wonderful book on North Africa. But you don't usually see uh, the women's role and women's participation factored into these kind of larger scale uh, macro comparative types of work. And so, Val, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and how you incorporate that into your comparative analysis um, and why you think it's so important. 
Yeah, thank you for that uh, question, Mark. Um, I find that in Middle East uh, studies in particular, there is a kind of disconnect between the research that uh, feminists um, do on um, women and gender issues, and then what uh, mainstream, <laughs> what other scholars do when it comes to some of these big questions about social movements and um, uh, revolutions, and of course the Arab Spring. Um, to me, with, uh, with the research that I've been doing since the 1980s, I mean, gender is really central. It is as central as social class is in um, both uh, in terms of causality, as well as in terms of outcomes. Um, what's different about um, our book is that we are looking not only at uh, women's issues and uh, gender issues in terms of the outcomes of um, the Arab Spring protests, um, and a great deal has been written about that, but also the way in which gender itself is an explanatory variable, the way in which the status of women, social positions of women, um, their history of mobilization and so on, um, the achievements and accomplishments um, feminist organizations, women's rights organizations have been able to have over um, years and decades, how that makes a difference in terms of the nature of protests and of course the outcomes. Um, so, uh, you know, Shamiran mentioned, of course, the violence um, in, uh, in, in some of our cases. And of course, a great deal has been written about that. Uh, well, where does a lot of this violence come, come from? Um, feminist scholars have um, pointed out that feminist movements are the nonviolent movements par excellence, for example. Um, I mean, other movements are nonviolent too, but um, only the feminist movement has been consistently uh, nonviolent. And there is something to be said about this kind of feminine presence in society, as well as in institutions that tends to shape and determine the nature of um, certainly of protests, of social movements, but also of, um, um, of policy and decision-making. Um, so we have incorporated that feminist lens into our, um, uh, broad ex, uh, explanation and examination of the causes of the out um, the outbreaks, the protests, the nature of those protests, the way they differed across um, our seven cases, why they differed, and one key reason as to why they differed, why the protests were different in, um, for example, you know, Syria, Libya, Yemen. Um, compared to say, um, certainly Tunisia and certainly um, Morocco as well, is precisely because of women's different status and the different nature of gender relations and the different ways in which women had inserted themselves in society, um, in political society and in civil society. Shortly after the uprisings broke out, Val, you wrote a, a short article on, the, on a different way of thinking about outcomes, basically saying, what is democracy um, if it doesn't guarantee women's rights? And we still read that in my graduate seminar and, and it really makes an impact, I think, on students who aren't used to thinking about it that way. Let, let's broaden it out a little bit. You also have a chapter on civil society more generally, and uh, and there are some issues with, uh, with state feminism and with the way civil society has been shaped by kind of international organizations and the NGOization of civil society that you talk about. Shamiran, do you want to talk a little bit about um, how you factor these different forms of civil society into your analysis and how that matters? Sure. I mean, I'll touch on it a little bit when, uh, with respect to uh, foreign aid allocations, and I think Val can um, take the rest on. Um, I think one of the things that we see is that civil, civil societies uh, across these countries really varied, and there are multiple actors and multiple ways in which people coalesce around you know, non-state institutions, whether it be women's organizations, trade unions, uh, teachers unions, um, and uh, religious organizations. Um, I think one of the things that we found in our analysis is that in places where there were kind of more positive initial transitions, women's organizations, women's civil society organizations, trade unions really acted as that buffer um, between the state and society and enabled, you know, elements of the of transitions to kind of proceed a bit more, both organically and a bit more holistically. Um, and at the same time, in places, for example, that had really weak civil society organizations, it meant that the protest movements were a lot more fragmented. 
Um, but it also meant that in some instances, you know, the regime was able to tap onto these kind of sectarianizing narratives in the case of Bahrain and Syria, for example, that really then, um, you know, uh, uh, where regimes saw these civil society organizations um, in Syria and in Bahrain as kind of mobilizing tools for inciting, you know, in the regime's words and the ways in which the regimes perceive them, uh, terrorism against the state. Um, and that led to the fragmentation of the protest movements, um, but also repression, right, against um, uh, key actors that were mobilizing. Um, and at the same time, I think one of the things we note in the book that relates to the civil society, but also the external dimension um, of one of our uh, uh, variables is the nature of aid and aid allocations. And this is something we kind of uh, uh the dig into in looking at how aid allocations towards, you know, initially what began through different EU neighborhood programs in North Africa, for example, um, what began as aid earmarked for education, uh, civil society, women's empowerment programs, youth empowerment programs after 9-11 actually shifted to much more securitized aid. Um, and that both, you know, in a way buffered the regime um, from any type of uh, uh, criticism from these aid organizations and uh, governments that have been uh, pretty active in, in committing all sorts of aid programs, uh, both from the EU and obviously most notably from the US. Um, but it also meant that there was a, a decline in some sense in that capacity as a result. And that's had a pretty staggering impact in places like Egypt, where we see the regime really clamp down on NGOs um, and at the same time, that kind of limited uh, capacity for uh, then civil society actors to both access funding, um, as well as, you know, mobilize in the same way that they were able to late 2010 and early 2011. Um, and so this kind of both shifting in the nature of aid and the aid allocation, and at the same time, post 9-11, this really emphasis on securitized aid and much more militarized aid changed the nature of civil society organizations. But in places that had historically robust civil society movements, you know, that didn't really alter the sort of power balance between civil society organizations and the regime. And we see this most notably in Tunisia. Yeah. And that has implications, you know, in thinking about um, some of the more recent developments in the country now um, that, that are unfolding. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, in our in our book, Mark, we take on some of these big questions, you know, what is revolution? What is um, uh, uh, democracy and democratic transitions? Um, what is civil society? Um, and we do try to make a distinction between uh, civil society in um, advanced uh, Western capitalist countries, um, where we argue that there is um, uh, a more porous boundary, let's put it that way, between civil society and the state. Um, and um, and in, uh, in other types of countries, especially in authoritarian or lesser developed countries where civil society can actually challenge, act as a challenger. Um, and, uh, but of course, uh, you know, the extent to which civil society can actually stand up to uh, the elites and the ruling classes really um, does depend on um, a number of other factors. So yes, uh, we found, um, and we still find, that the most robust civil society uh, has been found in uh, Tunisia. Um, and that is the result of um, various, de uh, you know, across uh, the institutional development of trade unions and women's organizations and human rights and lawyers and judges associations and so on over decades. Um, so, you know, there are varieties of authoritarianism too. Um, in the case of the Tunisian style of authoritarianism, those associations were actually allowed to develop. They had some room for maneuver and um, every so often they would challenge um, the state. Um, and so uh, civil society is not something that we um, uh, absolutely celebrate um, in the way that some of the scholars um, of Eastern Europe were celebrating it. It sort of depends. Um, is civil society modern, robust, uh, autonomous, independent, 
um, does it have uh, you know, progressive um, uh, agendas, et cetera, or is it reduced to um, internationally funded or even state funded um, NGOs? Um, and we found that in uh, Tunisia, civil society associations were far more independent, far more autonomous, far more committed and, and uh, uh, dedicated to democratization um, and, and, and more prepared to take an important role in the democratic transition. Yeah, and that definitely included um, the feminist organizations. What was also interesting about Tunisia was the extent to which there was this history of cooperation and collaboration among civil society um, associations and organizations as well. Um, and at times they organized actually to contest, um, you know, the government of the Ben Ali. Um, so we're not surprised. And as uh, Shamiran says, um, I think it's precisely that strength, that robust nature of civil society associations and organizations in civil society, which makes us, well, certainly makes me a little bit more optimistic about what's going on today. Yeah. Shamiran? That just to uh, piggyback on what Val uh, said, I think we also saw the important role that Tunisian civil society is playing even now. Um, the UGTT came out very forcefully against, you know, Said's uh, power grab when um, Article, um, you know, one one seventeen was passed, um, and so I think there is a lot happening there in that sense, um, and we've seen civil society organizations. Uh, really kind of come out and speak against this uh, uh, extraordinary power grab. Um, and so it's to be determined if civil society organizations are going to have that same robust mobilizing capacity to act as a buffer, you know, between the regime as they had under Ben Ali in late 2010 and early 2011. And I think I agree with Val that that's to be determined. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of kind of disconcerting developments with regards to exactly this kind of power grab that Article uh, 117 has given um, uh, Said. And so um, that's that's to be determined. Yeah. So. In the book, uh, you highlight these four variables. Um, there's a number of things that uh, have a lot of currency within the political science literature that you don't uh, spend a lot of time on or that you don't focus on, such as regime type, you know, the, the monarchy question um, doesn't uh, rank as heavily here as it does in some of the other books, um, oil wealth as a deciding variable, um, or the presence of Islam or nature of Islamist movements. Um, and so maybe maybe one of you could talk a little bit about why you don't include or give as much weight to the things that um, other others in this field have uh, have tended to emphasize. Sure, I can uh, start and then Val, maybe if you want to jump in. Yeah. I think we we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, and I think it's precisely because uh, uh, Jason Brownlee, uh, Tarek Masood, and uh, Reynolds' book did such a good job at showing how those variables interacted and, and rightly explaining some of the divergence that we saw in 2014. Um, and in that sense, we felt that the literature was actually out there. Um, but we do focus on, in both the external intervention chapter and in the regime chapter, we do touch on the question of oil wealth. And for example, we show that countries that had uh, that have pretty, pretty robust uh, resources with the exception of Egypt, and that's also because of external influence, is that they do tend to spend a, a disproportionate amount of their GDP on um, you know, the resources that come from oil, the sale of oil, on uh, military and military spending. And so we see pretty high military spending, um, which both takes away from state spending on socioeconomic development um, and militarizes the state in that sense. And and that in and of itself, you know, shields the regime from uh, 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 robust protest movements. In places like Bahrain, for example, where, you know, oil wealth has kind of dwindled, we show that though oil played an important part in state development, but actually the presence of things like the Fifth Fleet shields the regime from, uh, you know, both uh, external condemnation, but also from those uh, societal forces that may challenge the regime. Um, and so we focus quite a bit uh, in the chapter on state and regime type and show that these kind of interacting um, uh, variables really have a way of producing the divergence that we see 
once we look at this kind of a broad spectrum of issues that influence how regimes survive and why they don't in some instances. Um, and so the question of oil wealth does, you know, we touch on it in that chapter as well as the uh, last chapter um, in the book. Um, and we also, in some instances, we, we felt that the literature had done a pretty good job at showing that these, you know, variables were interacting and we cite them. Um, and so, uh, Val, I don't know if you want to yeah. take it. Why don't we uh, give Val the last word? Yeah, I, I think our, our book definitely complements um, some of the, um, uh, the other um, uh, studies that have come out. But um, uh, uh, Shamiran did a very good job of uh, responding to the question, but I would add that we actually do um, address the issue of Islamist movements and also um, oil, by the way. Oil did not save Libya for example. Um, and this is where the international intervention um, that we really highlight um, in the book as well um, is really quite salient um, in the case of, of Libya. It also is salient in the case of Bahrain. Um, uh, now, in the, uh, on the question of Islamist movements, they are, of course, and have been part of um, civil society, but they differed across our different um, cases. For example, they were actually stronger in Egypt um, than in, in, in Tunisia. Um, and, uh, you know, we mentioned that over the decades, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt had been able to have a kind of Gramscian war of position, um, if I may put it that way, in which they were able to spread um, and uh, you know, spread their influence across various institutions. So it was no surprise that uh, they came out on top um, in the uh, first uh, parliamentary and also the um, presidential elections. But of course, they made a lot of a lot of mistakes. So um, uh, I do think that our book actually complements the Brownlee et al book, but we look at um, the uh, causes and outcomes in a different way and through a different set of lenses. And I think that our readers will be able to um, you know, decide for themselves um, how persuasive and convincing um, our book is. And of course, I think that it is. <laughs> Well, Val, Shamiran, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is uh, the new book after the Arab uprisings. Um, and I uh, look forward to seeing this uh, being widely discussed in the field. Thank you very much, Mark, for the invitation. Thank you so much for having us, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by William Marble, Princeton University, and Selma Musa of Yale. Uh, they, along with Ala Al-Rababe of Stanford and Alex Siegel of the University of Colorado Boulder, recently published an article, Can Exposure to Celebrities Reduce Prejudice in the American Political Science Review? Will, Selma, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having us. So first off, I just want to congratulate you for accomplishing the amazing feat of getting Mo Saleh on the cover of the APSR. That's fa that's fantastic. Uh, Salma, why don't you tell us a little bit about the article, like where it came from, and what the major contribution and approach was? Sure. So aside from being uh, soccer fans ourselves, uh, we were really startled by this video that we saw go viral of Liverpool fans chanting, uh, if he's good enough for me, he's good enough for you. If he scores another few, then I'll be Muslim too. And the chant goes on, sitting in a mosque is where I want to be. Uh, and no no offense to Liverpool fans or soccer fans in general, but that's not necessarily the kind of like very positive um, tone you expect necessarily from like sports, traveling sports fans to talk about Muslims, especially in the UK. The Muslims are a very stigmatized group. And so uh, we started thinking like, hey, is, is Mo Salah in Liverpool, uh, joining Liverpool, is that actually making people less Islamophobic? Um, so that video was really the trigger for all of this. And um, Mo Salah, for those of you who don't know, is just a global superstar when it comes to soccer. He plays at the very, very elite level. Uh, some people say he's the best in the world right now. He was definitely up there when we wrote this paper a couple of years ago. Um, so he he plays in the English uh, domestic league and he he helped carry his his club to an English title and to a European title back to back. Um, he also carried Egypt basically to the World Cup for the first time in 30 years. Uh, and what's really special about him, aside from his amazing talent, is that he's very uh, visibly uh, a practicing Muslim. And so he's not the first elite soccer 
star to be Muslim, but he's really uh, one of the first to do things like uh, prostrate in prayer on the field after scoring a goal, um, to kind of point his finger to the sky, say the Shahada before, before games. His wife wears a, wears a headscarf and his daughter's name is Mecca, which is obviously named after the holy site in Islam. So all of these things together, I mean, even his name, Muhammad, he has a beard, you know, he's, he's a very, um, he's very visibly Muslim. That identity is very salient, unlike other soccer stars in the past, like Zinedine Zidane, for example, who played for France, where it wasn't really a super uh, public part of his identity. Um, so we started looking into kind of what, what does, uh, what is the theory? Do we have any theories really that can help us um, understand how to think about expectations around exposure to Salah among Liverpool fans relative to fans of other clubs? Um, how should we expect a relationship with a celebrity to work? Like, are we still in the, uh, in the contact hypothesis literature, this classic idea that uh, personal cooperative contact between people of different groups will reduce prejudice, forge friendships, and overall, it's a good thing for intergroup relations. You know, should we expect a relationship with a celebrity to work in the same way as you making a friend? Um, so when we dove into this, uh, the social psych on this, we came across the parasocial contact hypothesis, which is this idea that actually your relationship with celebrities and even fictional characters is works very similarly to your relationship with people, you know, in real life. Uh, and people actually do have a relationship to celebrities and fictional characters. Um, and how it, how well, at it least works. in their own minds, in their own minds. Yeah. It's not a two way relationship, but they feel as if they know them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a meaningful kind of, um, it's a meaningful, I guess, yeah, relationship, if it can be mm -hmm. a one-way relationship or exposure. Um, so they're learning about people from different, uh, from different backgrounds. They feel a personal connection to them. And so we thought, okay, we have enough here to start testing this idea. Um, and so the idea was to really look at, uh, look at Liverpool fans before and after he joined and compare them to fans of other clubs um, before and after he joined and do kind of a difference in difference and really test this idea uh, using using some real world behaviors that capture uh, attitudes and behaviors toward Muslims. And uh, you had some really, really creative uh, empirical tests that you developed for this. Uh, Will, do you want to walk us through the three big tests that you did? Yeah, so in order to test this parasocial contact hypothesis, we do three complementary analyses. The first one, uh, we sent public records requests to police departments in England, and we requested data on hate crimes uh, in the years leading up to the signing of Mo Salah by Liverpool uh, and in the, the, the years afterwards. Um, and what we did is we basically looked to see whether hate crimes were lower in Liverpool after Mo Salah had joined uh, uh, Liverpool FC relative to what we would have expected had he not joined. So in order to do this, we use a, a variant of the synthetic control method to sort of get an average of other police jurisdictions that resembles the pretreatment trend in Liverpool. And what we find, uh, and then we use that, uh, that trend to project what hate crimes would have been in Liverpool had Mo Salah not joined. And what we find is about a 16% drop in hate crimes relative to the, the projected counterfactual in the post-treatment period. And this is the largest drop that we see if we do a placebo test with all of the other police jurisdictions, it's, it's the largest consistent drop. So then this, so this gives us some evidence that perhaps Mo Salah uh, was reducing um, prejudice behaviors in, in Liverpool. But we wanted to look for other evidence as well, since this is uh, sort of uh, a, a surprising result maybe, or at least it's a, a rel relatively strong result. So we wanted to see if we could find evidence in other places as well, just in case for maybe that there was some other confounding factor that we didn't uh, pick up on. Um, so the second set of analyses we did was we scraped tweets of, uh, of people who follow five major football clubs in England, including Liverpool, um, some other prominent clubs, and, and notably Everton, which is another club that is also located in the city of Liverpool. And we took tweets from people who followed these clubs, and we classified tweets that we, we use some machine learning methods to classify tweets that are related to Muslims as either positive or negative in sentiment. And then we do a, take a similar empirical approach to try to estimate whether there's a decrease in Islamophobic tweets after uh, Liverpool signed, um, or after Mo Salah signed with Liverpool among Liverpool fans. 
And what we found is that after he signed, there was about a 50% reduction in anti-Islamophobic tweets uh, sent from followers of Liverpool FC. So this gives us some further evidence that uh, Mo Salah joining Liverpool may have decreased Islamophobia among Liverpool fans. And the final test we do is trying to get at a core mechanism at the parasocial contact hypothesis. So the idea with the parasocial high contact hypothesis is that if you have some parasocial relationship, as Salma said, with somebody from a stigmatized group, it may engender a decrease in prejudice toward that group writ large. But in order for this to work, people need to be able to generalize from the one person to the group as a whole. So what we did in the survey experiment is we tested a few different, we, we recruited uh, fans of Liverpool from Facebook, and we randomly assigned different vignettes about Mo Salah uh, for them to read. And in one vignette, we highlighted in particular his religious identity, highlighted some of the things that Salma just talked about in describing who Mo Salah is. And then we tested to see whether people who were exposed to this information about Mo Salah's religiosity expressed uh, more inclusive attitudes towards Muslims writ large than people in the control group. And we did in fact see uh, quite, a, quite a large increase in the proportion of people who said that Islam is compatible with British values when they were exposed, when, when these Liverpool fans were exposed to this information about, about Mo Salah's religiosity. So in sum, we have these three analyses that try to paint the picture uh, and provide different complementary pieces of evidence that Mo Salah's arrival at Liverpool may have had the effect of reducing Islamophobic behavior and attitudes. No, it's great. So you have behavior, expressed attitudes, and then this, uh, this interesting uh, survey experiment test. And uh, it, it really does. Uh, it, it's a surprising result. And so to be able to get that robust uh, uh, findings across three levels is really interesting. Um, Salma, so what do you think the major implications of this research are then in terms of how we should understand uh, these parasocial relationships and uh, the effects on attitudes towards Muslims? So I think the key thing that um, was revealed by the survey experiment was that when the minority group identity is very salient, people are able to make that psychological connection that connects that one individual to an entire group. And that's really the critical thing. The critical thing is that you don't just feel positive toward one person, but that that positive feeling will actually generalize to the whole group. Um, so, I mean, the implication of this is that when you have celebrities who um, or public figures whose group minority group identity is very salient, that that's kind of like the key thing to, that allows these positive effects to generalize. But the big caveat around all this is that Salah was really a, at peak, peak performance during this whole study period to the point where we actually had another treatment arm where we primed people to think that he's a one hit wonder and like that he might not last and see how that would affect the attitudes. And it just had no effect because it basically failed the manipulation check. People didn't believe it. Um, so he's doing so well that it really makes you wonder whether um, another condition for all this to happen is that the contact is really positive throughout and that this, uh, these minority players have to be really successful and be performing, you know, day, day in and day out for years, basically to have these effects and that they potentially, um, you know, should not take on these controversial political issues. So Salah is really like a poster child for, you know, avoids all kinds of controversy on and off the field. He's very, um, he's, he's not an alienating or polarizing figure. He doesn't take on any political stances publicly and he plays amazingly. So if you're going to find an effect, you're going to find it here. But is that going to generalize to players who take on political stances and use their platform for that activist role that's a bit more divisive? Um, does that potentially mean for some fans they have more negative contact? Or does it mean that for, uh, for others that this is actually building empathy toward my, minority players and they're seeing a different perspective on how people experience the world? Um, what happens when he stops scoring? What happens when these public figures or these celebrities, they have a bad day? Are they afforded that same luxury of, oh, it's okay to have a bad day? Or are you going to see a backlash effect? So kind of how tenuous are these effects? Um, so I guess the takeaway is when everything's going really well, this can potentially be a very powerful channel to change people's attitudes and even pretty extreme behaviors. Um, but the big question mark for us is what happens when things are not going so well or when players use their platform for something different, which might be more polarizing. 
You mentioned in the conclusion of the article, um, and it's interesting to compare uh, the, re the response to Mo Salah with, uh, say, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, the uh, American basketball player who uh, wanted, who was a Muslim, or to Colin Kaepernick, um, where the responses were much more negative and, and it didn't translate in the way you saw with Mo. Yeah, and so that for us really um, raises the possibility that uh, this, when we say that the contact needs to be positive, what does that mean? How do you create positive contact? Mm -hmm. Like one piece of it is player success. And so the question again is what happens when they start playing badly? Um, and then the other piece of it is that uh, do they need to be totally non-controversial, non-scandalous? Um, and how does the media choose to cover them? And it's very hard to predict that. For Salah, he doesn't take on any political stances. Like he, the one, so twice in his life he did. The first time it was when he played for Basel, a club in Switzerland, and he didn't want to shake the hand of an Israeli um, Israeli opponent. And, you know, back then he was he was not really the global superstar, but even then it made headlines and um, there were there's a really negative response from Israeli fans. The second time he took a stance was he had kind of a kind of a lukewarm, but, you know, he still said something about the most recent like wave of attacks on on Gaza and Palestine. And even for that, you started to see like, oh, the fan base started to become a little bit more divided. Um, so if you kind of take that to the example of people like Colin Kaepernick, who use their platform um, like very strongly for protesting against social uh, social just for just social justice movements. Um, the question is, like, you know, does that just divide the fan base and make the contact less negative for people who don't support that stance? Just logically, it seems that that would follow. Right. Like just by definition, if you take on a polarizing stance, this kind of effect might not hold for everyone. Um, but, you know, maybe for some people, it gives them a different perspective on how minority people experience the world. So we don't really know, you know, where what direction that effect might go. Yes, we'll, we'll find out whether, say, Aaron Rodgers or the Green Bay Packers, uh, if uh, it actually makes people more vaccine skeptical or if everyone just forgets about it because he plays so well. Um, Will, one last question then. Um, one of the interesting things about the article methodologically is the way that you layer the three different tests and uh, you find that the results kind of stack up and they, they support each other. Can you just say a little bit about, you know, that approach to empirical testing and, uh, you know, what, what if they hadn't lined up? Yeah, I think our approach here was thinking about how well, we didn't have a perfect research design or a perfect outcome measure or a perfect control group for any of these tests. So our thought was, let's try to gather several pieces of evidence that together probably um, uh, are more persuasive than any one piece on its own. Um, so in this case, it kind of worked out in that they all pointed in the same direction. Um, if they didn't point in the same direction, I think you would have to think deeply about whether uh, the test is capturing the quantity of interest that you're uh, that you're really interested in, and whether you're whether you're estimating the right thing, and whether the measure is a good measure of the concept that you're trying to capture. Um, but I, I think it's a much more difficult thing to do if these tests don't line up in and point in the same direction. Um, and I don't think I have a, a strong solution for that, but I think there are lots of uh, uh, lots of ways to think through the different implications of a theory and try to see how closely the theory is matching the empirical test that you're conducting. Well, thanks, Will and Salma, for joining us. Fascinating article. Congratulations. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week on our events segment, we're joined by May Hassan of the University of Michigan uh, to talk about Sudan and the really remarkable and robust um, civil resistance that we've seen uh, to the attempted military coup and uh, and uh, the derailing of the transition. And uh, my can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the Sudanese civil resistance, why it's been so resilient and robust, and uh, you know, what do we need to know about how Sudan became such a powerful um, example of civilian mobilization? Thanks, Mark, for <clears throat> having me on this podcast. Yeah, very excited to talk about um, developments in Sudan. So I'm sure many of your followers, um, many of your listeners have kept up with, with the Sudanese uprising. It began back in 2018 um, against the former autocrat, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, um, in which a popular um, 
mobilization campaign lasting uh, uh, for, for months eventually ousted him on April 11th, 2019. Um, and then since that, since then, we've been in a transitional period in which there's been this partnership between different civilian forces under the Forces for Freedom and Change, an umbrella group of, um, of opposition elites and civil society organizations and opposition parties and trade unions, alongside the military, um, military being a big force in Sudan, having ruled Sudan um, for for. I believe like 52 of 60 of the years of, of since since independence. Um, and they were the ones who actually forced Ali Bashir from power. Um, and so this partnership between the, the forces for freedom and change and the, the, the military was always, or the security forces in general, not just the army, right. um, has always been uneasy. Um, but then uh, in part because of stalemating and just the regular problems of, of, of democratic transitions, um, the Abdel Fatih Burhan decided to, to use that cover right to, to coup out or to, to implement a coup and try right. to take over power and stop this democratic transition. Um, and since that initial counter-revolutionary coup on October 15th, on October 25th, we've seen a whole host of mobilization come back people out onto the streets, very much um, continuing the work of the initial revolution back in 2018, 2019. And you're asking about where the strength of that comes from. And I'll talk mostly about um, mobilization in Khartoum, not only because it's the largest uh, city in, in, in Sudan and uh, the capital and where a lot of mobilization is happening, but also because that's where a lot of my research um, mm -hmm. is based and a lot of where my contacts to who I'm getting information from the ground um, is from. But in, in Khartoum, a lot of the mobilization um, tends to happen under uh, neighborhood resistance committees. And so in Arabic, that's Lejan um, Muqawama. Um, so you can imagine that in a city of, of 8 million people, that different neighborhoods have really strong bonds um, uh, between them. You can imagine neighborhood youth, even before the uprising, right, would go out and play soccer together. Um, their, their moms all know each other and borrow sugar, right? Um, they all see each other in, in the, the little squares in front of their houses. And so the people in different uh, neighborhoods have strong social bonds anyways. And you can imagine that under conditions of a really, really weak state that Sudan has had for, for, for decades um, and, and amid um, non-democratic regimes, that these bonds only get that much stronger. And so when the uprising broke out, you know, these neighborhood resistance committees really just formed organically to try to mobilize um, their own neighborhoods and mobilize um, surrounding areas in, in, in support of the initial 2018. 2019 um, revolution, and ever since the the counter revolutionary coup, you know these 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 Lejan, as as they're called, it's not like they went away during the transition period. They were always seen as a really critical and crucial pillar for the transition to make sure precisely that the transition stayed on track. How do they, so, how do they coordinate with each other if they're so localized? Yeah. Um. So how do they coordinate with each other? So initially, um. The, there was broad coordination at the, at the organization level through the FFC, the, the, the opposition coalition, and through the trade union, the Sudanese Professionals, Asso Professionals Association, which really solved a lot of the coordination problem by telling people, this is when we should coordinate, this is when we should go out. Um, and so setting up the broad contours of mobilization. And so then these Lejan would, would take those broad contours and either follow them directly or maybe you know improvise a little bit here or there. Um, and while, and I should say, especially after um, Omar al-Bashir fell, so especially after April um, 11th in, in 2019, communication between these Lejan really got, um, the links between them really grew. So you can imagine that links between within a, in a specific neighborhood are always tight, but then links across neighborhoods really grew um, in part because of there was a huge sit-in that lasted for two months. And many of these revolutionary activists were just all around each other, got each other's phone numbers, started trusting each other. Um, and now you see like these huge um, broad Khartoum cross uh, these huge um, committees that are all across Khartoum. So um, even if you're in just one specific neighborhood, you're connected to other Lejan in other parts of, of the capital. So there, so, was the, so there was like this older existing kind of organized civil society, the professional associations and groups like that, but that wasn't enough. 
Yeah, so, you know, Sudan um, had two popular revolutions before the, as it's called, the Glorious December uh, Revolution um, of 2018. And one was in, in 1964, one was in 1985. And those were very much um, led by, um, by unions, trade unions, very much an elite-driven movement um, coming solely out of Khartoum. And while I'm talking purely out of, uh, purely about Khartoum because of, of what, what I know and what my research is on, I should say that the, this current December uprising is truly national. Um, cities, you know, 19, 20 cities um, all have had huge amounts of uh, protests ever during the, the initial uprising and also since the counter-revolutionary coup this past month. Um, but you do get a sense that mobilization in this current moment is very different than the past uprisings, precisely because it's not just this elite-driven thing of, uh, of elite politics, but really um, regular people are out onto the streets and, and fueling and they've, been, and, and they've managed to continue doing this despite fairly extreme state violence. Yeah, no, it's um, it's been been really atrocious. So ever since the counter-revolutionary coup, I believe 41 um, civilians have been murdered, um, most of them happening in, in Khartoum. Um, and that they can continue amidst this is, is truly remarkable. But I mean, I think it's getting to, in thinking about some political science research, um, a lot of work, um, talks about backlash, mm-hmm. right? That a lot of people, when they see states engage in such um, repressive uh, violence um, against regular nonviolent mobilization, that it might compel others to like go out into the streets even more. And I think we're definitely seeing elements of that. People are just truly angry. They're just livid, um, not just at, at how they're they're martyring youth. Of, of 13, of 16, but also that they, there's just no respect even for what Sudanese had fought for in this, this uprising and that this one general thinks that he can come in and just completely derail the whole transition because, you know, he wants t- to make sure that his, his economic empire stays around, right? How is the FFC connected to these popular mobile, the, the neighborhood committees and the like? Do they represent them? Is there some kind of organic relationship or how, how does that work? So the these neighborhood resistance committees, these Lejan, um, initially during the initial uprising back in 2018, 2019, um, there was a a field committee of, of 14 people that had really strong links on the ground, different, they were, these were just people who were activists. These 14 in this initial committee were just activists who were well-known among dissident circles and had a lot of links across the tri-city capital. Um, and so could help mobilize um, different communities that way. And then as the, the uprising continued, you know, their links grew stronger. But ever since um, the actual transition began, there has been a lot more connection between these Lejan and the FFC, but not in a formal sense. Um, these Lejan have just transformed into this organic body. Um, they have their own specific demands that are distinct from the FFC ones. Mm-hmm. And they are, are, you know, really pushing a very democratic and, and revolutionary, truly revolutionary agenda that they're hoping to see through. So what, one of the demands of, uh, of these popular movements has been for, I guess, what we could call transitional justice or retributive justice for, um, you know, try to hold the former regime to account. And yet that seems to be in tension with the more narrow or institutionalist notions of a transition to democracy. So how do they, how do they navigate um, that tension? This is a really fine line that the transition has been trying to to walk. And so the initial revolution, one of the main slogans was freedom, peace and justice and a huge emphasis on justice, uh, precisely because of the the because of all of the violence that the Bashir regime had inflicted. Many were calling for transitional um, justice in the wake of, of al-Bashir um, leaving power, uh, whether it was it meant like sending al-Bashir to the ICC um, and also sending many of the top 
military brass, um, whether maybe not the ICC, but to have internal courts really um, sanction and, and imprison many of these men who have committed horrible atrocities all around the country, especially in the periphery, especially in Darfur, especially in southern parts of mm-hmm. Sudan. But you can imagine that if these people who are going to be on the chopping block for this transitional justice, um, if they're the ones who are in, are in part leading the transition along, you know, through the through the military alongside the, the the civilian FFC branch, you can imagine that they are really worried when the street when when these Lejan uh, Mukawama are calling for for transitional justice because that means you know that they themselves mm-hmm. go into jail, and so I think it's just a really it's it's been a really difficult you know, needle to thread. And I'm, I personally have no idea how it's, how it's going to happen because the street now is, is intent, not just on um, punishing many of these, these uh, military men for, for their past atrocities, but for their ongoing ones. 41 civilians in the past month have died, mm-hmm. you know, uh, protesting very peacefully. Um, there's a huge massacre in, um, you know, disbanding a really peaceful sit-in back in June of, of 2019. And many people want to see justice for this. But if the people who are leading the transition are the ones that are supposed to be implicated, well, unclear how this is going to go. No, and it's, it's especially difficult now because uh, Burhan has gone and kind of taken apart, disassembled a lot of the constituent parts of the transition. And it's kind of hard to see how you put those pieces back together again. Yeah, it's un it's unclear what's what's gonna yeah. happen moving forward. Since this is a, a political science podcast, I want to go back um, to kind of where we started because there's some things which are really interesting, and that's about the um, kind of the moment of formation here when you're going back to late 2018, early 2019, um, and it's just always interesting when you see this like sudden dramatic. Um, coming together like that. When you reflect on that compared to other cases, you know, can we learn any lessons from kind of the Sudanese experience? I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned uh, uh, from from mobilization in the Sudanese case for for external cases. And so um, I'm just finishing up a paper that you know um, I think I I've shared with you and I yeah, got yeah. great feedback on from from Pomeps, in which um, it looks at how uh, um, different dissidents can mobilize and they can how they can coordinate their tactics under repressive environments. And so you can imagine for coordinated for for collective action to happen, people have to know you know the who, what, when, where of mobilization. Where do you go out? What should we be doing? When and where should we be? And uh, in many cases, people point to the role of, of labor unions as a social movement organization to, to solve this, this um, coordinating problem. And others look, especially after the Arab Spring, to the role of, of ICTs, of, of social media, to, to help different dis- dis- disparate dissidents yeah. um, connect and coordinate. But when this type of public coordinating, when this type of coordinating information is made public, well, then not not only do dissidents know when where to be, but the regime knows where to be as well. And so in interviewing many members of different Lejan across across Khartoum, it's become really clear that oftentimes many, many different dissidents would rely on a lot of the coordinating information that was public, but then improvise on the place of a different, um, a different uh, improvise on the place and plan a parallel or simultaneous protest elsewhere, precisely so as to, to benefit and leverage the fact that the security forces were expected to be one place so that they could, you know, protest in peace and mobilize others and help draw and others into this low-cost form of mobilization elsewhere. And so I think one thing to, to add more broadly is, aside from, you know, you know, continuing much of your work, Mark, about how, thinking what specifically should we think about being the role in IC, of ICTs and mobilization, I think another um, point is to try to understand what actually, what information is being con- communicated through coordinating right. information in, in that's public in repressive environments. What's interesting in in, in the Sudan case, and I think more broadly now, just this historical moment is the role of these like kind of semi-public social media, the WhatsApp groups and things like that, which really is different from like a really public facing thing like Twitter or Facebook. 
Yeah, um, and but that you know, thinking about WhatsApp versus Twitter though has has its problems too. Because mm-hmm. you know, talking to many of these different um, members of Beijing, they're like, yeah, well, we can create a WhatsApp group and we can invite everyone in the neighborhood. But the regime had infiltrating a- agents everywhere, and so how do you know who right. to to bring into into your WhatsApp group, right? Like, it's very easy to create a small group of like five or seven people, people, but you can't have a mo- you can't have an uprising of just five <laughs> or seven, right? You need you need to add more people and bring give them some some more information but how do you vet these individuals sufficiently enough um so that you know the information yeah. doesn't leak too far and but the neighborhood lejean maybe help to solve that because they're smaller and they know each other definitely they know each other and they have really it was really great hearing um their innovative ways of vetting um people who wanted to join these committees or wanted to join like broader whatsapp groups um they would go and do if they hadn't heard of someone who was wanted to join uh the the resistance committee then they would go and you know, ask everyone in the neighborhood about this person. They would ask, you know, find out where they went to school, where they went to college or high school, and ask the friends from from high school. Um, they would try to tail some of these people to make sure that they don't, like, you know, on a Wednesday night, go to 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 the regime um, mm-hmm. regime headquarters and things like this. No, it's, it's it's really interesting, and I think that uh, you know, kind of around the region, you know, I think people do look at Sudan and kind of say, "How do they do it?" <laughs> and <laughs> And um, it's, it's really been quite remarkable. So Mai, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through this. And um, I can't wait to see your work get published. Thanks so much, Mark, for giving me this opportunity. And yes, I'm very, you know, very excited um, to uh, see what happens in the future um, with, with this uprising and really hopeful that inshallah, um, the democratic transition will be back um, on pace soon.